Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank a couple sponsors that we were able to secure for this season, uh, season five of the Scuttlebutt. It's exciting to be able to get sponsors for this. Uh, we're really thankful for them. Uh, the first one, you might have heard them already, is D&D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. The Scuttlebutt's been pairing with D&D for quite some time. D&D uh, began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s and has grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. These are state-of-the-art scrapyards with deep roots in the community and a strong commitment to the service of their customers. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D and D, autosalvage.com. Thank you, D&D, &D, for supporting this podcast. Uh, been wonderful collaborating with you, and uh, we're looking forward to, to being with you uh, all through season five here. We'd also like to thank a new sponsor for the Scuttlebutt, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. Tobacco-Free Adagio Health is dedicated to preventing and reducing tobacco use and increasing education about tobacco hazards and secondhand smoke. Of course, the best way to be tobacco-free is to never start. And we'll be sharing more about the many programs offered by Tobacco-Free Adagio Health in the future. You can check out more of their work at tobaccofree.adagiohealth. That's A-D-A-G-I-O health.org. Tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Org. Um, really excited to have sponsors on board uh, for the Scuttlebutt, and uh, I hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. One thing you always have to know about China and the Chinese state and its propaganda machine is that it is always trying to make China look uh, old, linear, and continuous. Like It wants China to look as old as possible, as long-lasting as possible, and as united as possible, as deep into history as possible. So China's line, the propaganda line, is that China has 5,000 years of history, and that's not quite true. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Uh, the Scuttlebutt is really built as a vehicle to bridge the military-civilian divide by attempting to understand military culture. Our guest today is Jason Scheftel. Uh, he is a China expert. Uh, you're going to see why we call him a China expert. Um, he very much understands the history of China, how they came to be who they are now, the problems that they are dealing with internally, um, the external problems, how the relationship with the United States has developed over the last century plus, um, and sort of where we stand now and where we see it going forward. Uh, it's a very interesting discussion, um, but I think that you're going to be very interested in all of the educational elements here, because we do hear a lot of noise uh, about China. We should be tough on China. And it's really difficult to sift through a lot of the noise that we hear about China. And I think that Jason does a really good job of breaking it down to what do we need to be concerned with? Um, this episode is actually coming on the tail of currently today, as I record this, the Russia uh, invasion of the Ukraine. Um, also, the recent um, summit that was held between China uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, um, but also on the 50th anniversary 
recently of Richard Nixon's visit to China back in 1972. So there's a lot of different dates that are sort of aligning right now, and it's a very interesting time to have this conversation. Uh, and joining me for this, as always, is co-host Ryan All. Um, I, I think you'll be very interested to hear what Jason has to say. We'll also have his website um, and his series on YouTube uh, posted here in the description. And as always, thank you to our sponsors, D&D autosalvage.com and uh, tobacco-free Adagio Health. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. Um, and, uh, and for you as listeners, uh, feel free to check us out at uh, on YouTube or go to our website, veteransbreakfastclub.org forward slash scuttlebutt. Um, and also feel free to drop me a line. If this conversation today has you thinking and you'd like to share some of your thoughts, please do. Um, and you can do that at Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Org. Uh, and without further ado, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan All. I'm a U.S. Army veteran, and I work for the VA Vet Center program. Happy to be here. Thank you, Ryan. And Jason, uh, welcome to the Scuttlebutt. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Sean. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Uh, well, I want to dive into this conversation because there's really, we're saying too much to cover in the idea of just China, economy, global, political, you know, even given uh, a lot of what is happening today as we record this, that Russia is invading the Ukraine. There's so many things to get to, but I think what we want to start with, Jason, is just your history. Why did you uh, decide to become an expert on China? Sure. So my interest in China goes back to when I was very young. So I just had a childhood interest in it as far back as I can remember. I was always interested in the culture, the architecture, the language, the history, the books, the literature, everything. I grew up also with a Chinese individual, a man sort of coming in and out of my childhood home. Mm -hmm. I had a brother who had autism and he was the guy who helped him. So I grew up basically with a Chinese person obsessed with China forever. And then what happened to me during the 2000s, it was actually 9-11, the Iraq war, as the U.S. sort of involved itself in its Middle Eastern misadventures, to give him a phrase, I was always concerned about China. I was always interested in China. I just remember thinking, wow, we're you know getting into a big war in the Middle East, and there's all these desert skirmishes going on. But what if in the background, as China modernizes and it develops, and it finally overcomes its struggles with poverty, if it reaches you know a place where it can challenge the United States, becomes a real ge geopolitical rival, that was what I was concerned with. And so that really animated me. And then I got a scholarship to study in China. I learned Chinese. I was living in Beijing. And I did that for, for a while. And what happened to me is I decided middle of the 2010s, I had to make a decision. Would I stay in China, for, engross myself even deeper into the, into the culture, the language, or would I try and do something different? And what I decided was that I would try and go back to the roots of what China is and to the geography, the land, the history, and try and pull together the old story and the old history of China, united with the modern one, and give people a sense of what's actually going on. Because when I was there, I realized sitting in Beijing, you don't learn anything about China. It, it's too big. It's too old. It's too large. It's too diverse. It's like going to DC and thinking, living for a few years, learning English, and thinking you understand the United States. Mm -hmm. Like I don't think you understand anybody in Houston or people in Seattle. It's a very different thing. And I had to. I really was obsessed and really wanted to get a handle on it. So I decided to try and figure it out. And that's kind of what brought me to where I am today. And you know, this year I'll, I'll be publishing a book on China, which is kind of the culmination of all of this. Really the interests and the time, it's almost 20 years going back. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a long time. So that's really my history with it. And what's happening now is that it's just become the center of a lot of our geopolitical discussions. And it's increasingly the center, although today, of course, Russia is at the heart of things, but that is where things are headed. And for me, it's just lines up with what I've been into as far back as I can remember. 
speaking of history, we were just chatting before we started recording about the idea that China is so old that, you know, none of the really the nations in the in the world can really rival it for just being China and how old this this culture really is. And um, though we're going to jump, you know, ahead here soon to, you know, in the last even 50 years ago, uh, almost this week was Nixon's visit to China. And that seemed like it'd be a big, a big milestone in the relations between US and China. We'll get to that. But why has this culture survived for, for so long? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And what I'm going to try and do in this question and every other is I'm going to try and piece out the propaganda from some of the truth. And one thing you always have to know about China and the Chinese state and its propaganda machine is that it's always trying to make China look uh, old, linear, and continuous. Like it wants China to look as old as possible, as long lasting as possible, and as united as possible, as deep into history as possible. So China's line, the propaganda line is that China has 5,000 years of history. And that's not quite true. It's much closer to 3,500 years of history, which is still a very, very long time. That's the middle of the second millennium BC. That's when the, the Shang dynasty first came together. And it, it's, very, it's very old. It's not as long as the Harappan civilization, early Indus Valley, India. It's not as long as Egypt, ancient Egypt, of course, or Mesopotamia. But like you said, the difference with China and these other old civilizations is that China has a sense of continuity with these old states that you don't see in Iraq. Iraq isn't talking about ancient Sumeria. Uh, Egypt isn't talking about ancient Egypt. And India has real problems with basic unity at a, at a basic level that doesn't let it really connect back to its history in a comprehensive sense. So you're really left with China. And that is something that's very important and very different and very powerful. And it gives China a lot of internal integrity and a sort of a sense of its history and its place in the world. And everyone sees that the, the, the vigorous pride China has in itself and its history, and not just these past accomplishments, but like what you mentioned, the recent accomplishments, just what it's done in the last 50 and really 40, 35 years has been pretty stunning. So, so when you say like the, the, you know, the propaganda machine, can you describe that for people? Like what, is that an outgrowth of the, of the communist state or is that an outgrowth of just the nationalism or, or where is that coming from when they're, when they, when, in your opinion, when they say like, we are trying to display this longevity and this integrity, like what, what is driving that? Sure. So at, in modern times, in the current Chinese state, there's actually basically a propaganda department, the same way you'd have a, a cabinet. We have cabinet divisions for agriculture and energy. Mm -hmm. There's basically one called the propaganda department. It was renamed the publicity department in the last few years you know, for publicity type reasons. <laughs> but that, that's the way it is. So it really is a top-down system for information control that is disseminated throughout the country and is pushed out through various party organs spearheaded by that, that division. And again, it's like, it's like a cabinet level position. But the deeper question you asked is really important. Is this a Chinese communist thing? Is this a recent nationalist thing? I think the, the deeper answer is that it's actually a part of all Chinese states that have ever been. All Chinese imperial states have had a strong need for information control. It goes hand in hand with political and military control. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, a, a good first cut at it is that China is not as in integrated or unified as it really seems. And you actually need both uh, a massive military, you need a massive internal security apparatus, you need a massive uh, state police force, but you also need a strong control over thought and information. And it really does go back all the way really to the Qin dynasty. This is the, the first real dynasty in China. It's around, you know, 200-ish BC, and that is 
when things started. But it's been it's been around forever. You can go to the Ming Dynasty. You have crazy secret police forces. You have all sorts of very intense um, control information control campaigns, and it's it's very different than the United States. And so what I'm always trying to give people is a sense for how the countries of the world are just not the same, right? And for China, free you know free thought, free enterprise, all of these things, it can be good for a little while for economic growth, but in the end, it starts to really impair the functioning of the, the centralized political state. And so basically, as far back as China can remember its centralized political state, they've done a lot, as much as possible, to control the flow of information, have it oriented towards state ends rather than individual or regional ones. In particular, regional, regional ones are very, very dangerous. And that is kind of what it does. And the modern incarnation of China just does that on a, a scale that's you know both awe-inspiring inspiring and horrifying. Yeah. A real quick follow up for, you know, for our listeners, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier on, like, uh, in the answer to that question, you know, that, that China's not as united as it, as it may appear. So what, what are the, what are the different groups or factions within China? Are they, are they uh, racial or ethnic or religious? Like what, what are the major dividing lines that China is working so hard to make sure that everyone appears to be part of big China? Like what, are, what are those groups? Yeah, so there's ethnic divisions, there's linguistic divisions. I think the main one to focus on, though, and the one that allows you to sort of range across the whole of Chinese history is really to focus on geographic divisions. So the pieces of China, the physical pieces of the big red country that we see on the map, they don't fit together very well. Part of the reason you need this giant state, you need this insane infrastructure, you need this massive military is because you have to integrate these regions by force. So the way it worked is uh, the core of ancient China was is basically the Yellow River. This is Northern China. This is the North China Plain. This is um, the, the lower reaches of the Yellow River. And if you look at history, you'll say, it'll say China was Yellow River civilization, right? You have all this X, you know, the river and then the civilization. It's very common, Nile River civilization. And for China, this really is the truth. The, the Yellow River region was where the political and demographic core of China first originated. And over time, that became the military core. And what this core did was conquer the rest of China. So 221 BC is the date for the unification of China. This is when the Qin dynasty conquered China, but it actually didn't conquer all sorts of China. It conquered Northern China. This was the first integration of Northern China into a state that could then conquer the rest of China. That is actually mm. what the history is telling us. And so before then, you actually had over a thousand years of basically constant chaos and violence in Northern China because it is an extremely, extremely violent, bloody, brutal place. It's very difficult to control. It wasn't until 221 BC that it happened. And then from there, they conquered the different regions. The key integration has always been the Yellow River region with the Yangtze. So Yellow River is Northern China, roughly speaking, the Yangtze is Central or, you know, Central, or, it depends how you want to call it, but Central or, or Southern China, it's right below it. So these are two rivers that are parallel to each other. So one, they both flow West to East and they don't intersect. And the, the two, basically uniting these two regions was the, this became the core of Han China. It was the integration of both of these river systems. And this is not always easy to do. So in India, for example, or the Indian subcontinent, you have India, which is based on the Ganges River. And then you have Pakistan, which is quite literally based on the Indus River. And they weren't ever able to integrate these two regions since partition and all of that in the last 75 years. It's been extremely difficult. And it, it's, it's right now, it's a, basically a, a place of constant tension and conflict and mm -hmm. violence. It's the closest we've got to nuclear war 
It's a very difficult thing. So China took a long time, took hundreds of years. I'd give it 600 years or so to actually integrate the what became the core Han regions. Everything else is even worse, right? So that was the hard, that was not the easy part, right? That was already really hard, took hundreds of years. And the process by which China asserted its control, particularly over the Yangtze, this was not a fun thing, right? This was, this involved the brutal destruction of various languages, uh, ethnic identities, cultures, et cetera, all this kind of stuff. But it's so long ago that we, we just forget about it. And in, in some sense, it's, 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 it's a very long past, right? So that, that was part of it. But then further asserting the Chinese central control originating primarily in Northern China throughout the rest of China, this is an incomplete process, right? So they managed to do it in the Yangtze, basically. And then other regions, it just hasn't happened, right? So Southwest China, you get into crazy regions, right? You have crazy jungle regions in the Southwest. You have, obviously, you have the Hong Kong region, which is its own city that China spent a thousand years trying to colonize Vietnam. It wanted to create basically another version of Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and Hong Kong, it wanted control of another uh, primary river delta. It failed. Mm -hmm. It just goes on and on. I mean, I could really go, China, like I said earlier, is extremely, it's an extremely large place. But these geographic divisions are what people should focus on. Because even right now, if you're looking at problems and tensions within modern China in, in the present moment, a lot of them are geographically based. For example, a lot of the wealth, the real wealth in China is coastally located. So it's located in the major export zones along China's eastern coast. You move inland, it really changes. You see mass poverty. You see all sorts of things that aren't, aren't so nice and that don't fit the image we have of China. Mm -hmm. But once more, it's, it's this geographic thing. You have these export zones typically located on either river deltas or in the political core in the north. It, it's just these, these divisions repeat themselves. And there's a whole reason why of, of just how economic development and national consolidation, all these things happen. But one way to think about it is that China, China is an empire historically, not because it goes out and conquers other parts of the world, but because it needs to be an empire to keep China itself together. It's an empire to take control over the pieces of China. And that process isn't fully complete. It's, it kind of reminds me of the idea of uh, a one China, which I, I want to get to uh, eventually because that's such a big deal considering Taiwan and China and our relationship there. United States uh, becomes its own country. You know, we expand, we go coast to coast, but where does the relationship with China begin with the United States? Yeah, the United States has always had a pretty large place in the Chinese imagination. I think that's uh, an interesting thing. I think, well, of course, the United States isn't that old in Chinese. It, like it only has been around for one, the last Chinese dynasty. So mm -hmm. there's been 10, 12 major Chinese dynasties. The US has only been around for the very last one. This was the Qing dynasty. And the there's a lot, the Qing dynasty, it's very complicated, but roughly speaking, the United States was seen in a very interesting light because the China, the Qing dynasty had serious problems with basically imperialism with Great Britain in particular, the opium wars, all of this, as the state was degenerating in the 19th century, you saw a lot, China was looking out to the world to try and see how it could modernize itself. This was very similar what happened after the fall of the, the Qing dynasty in the early 20th century. And like Japan, it, everybody, it looked to all sorts of places and it looked to the United States. Very bizarrely, there was a cult of George Washington that formed for a while in China. It, it's a very interesting thing. And there's, you gotta remember that China got trounced by Britain during multiple opium wars. It had, it was very humiliating. There was, you know, in, in unfair treaties, all this kind of stuff happened. And meanwhile, it looked at the United States, which successfully uh, led a 
you know, a revolution, a, re a rebellion and a revolution against Britain. And was like you said, expanding coast to coast to become much, much larger than Great Britain. So there was a sense of fascination from a very early age. And there's obviously maritime connections. This was primarily the, the early connections were commercial. They were in, primarily done through Southern China. So that was in all of, a, a lot of the early Chinese immigrants to the United States were all you know, Southern Chinese. Those are the people in the, the West Coast building railroads, et cetera. That is a, that's a, a lot of the history. The, the 19th century isn't as interesting, um, the early part of it. Towards the end, China was basically the last piece on the chessboard for the global chessboard for all the imperial powers. And the US took a firm role in creating basically an open door China policy open. It basically wanted China to be left open so it could have a piece of it, right? This was a very, this is an era where it was very mercantilist, let's get what we can from other countries type vision in the world. And that really dominated uh, in the 19th century. But I think just to jump forward really quick, you mentioned one China. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important for people to realize that the very reason that China is so obsessed with one China and goes, goes crazy about it, right? One China with Taiwan, one China with Hong Kong is for the reasons we were just talking about. China actually isn't one China. That, that's mm -hmm. the truth. There isn't one China. And if you're a central Chinese state trying to rule one China, you're going to tell everybody there is one China. Do you know what I mean? It's actually pointing yeah. out the very weakness that we're talking about, but in the reverse, right? In the, it's the negative space from it. It's like, okay, there's many Chinas within China, but we're going to, you know, you have to, you have to say even louder that there's only one China, right? That's kind of what happens. And it's very possible. So when the Soviet Union fell, you had multiple stands suddenly appeared out of it, right? Tajikistan, Kazakhstan. Yeah. And there's, there's probably actually a few more stands left in, in, in Russia right now. If things go bad, you could have a Tartar stand, you could have a Chechnya stand, you know, that, that's the way things go. In China, if things, whenever things fall apart in China, that's what always happens. So when the Qing dynasty devolved, basically in 1911, 1912, Qing dynasty collapsed, it was called a revolution called the Xinhai revolution, but it was really a devolution. What happened is the, the central state uh, broke apart and all of the regional states became their own states and started warring against each other. This is the classic pattern in Chinese history. You go from the one state to the many warring states, and you have you know, decades or centuries of brutal internecine violence between these little political Chinese subunits. But that is what China fears in general. I mean, it, everyone always wants to know, what is China up to? What is it after? What is it scared of? What is it trying to do? The deepest fear in China is the breakdown of the Chinese state and the massive resulting war, violence, economic destruction, it's very, it's, it's severe. So people may not realize, but before the 20th century, both of the deadliest wars in human history were Chinese civil wars. Yeah. And China right now is, you know, much larger than it's ever been. So a, yeah, when things go bad in China, they get, they get really bad. And it's not really, you know, all these external conflicts stuff with the United States, those are actually much more minor than outside of a nuclear war. What China can do to itself is much worse than what any country can do to China. It seems like that's something that we have in common with them. I feel like one thing that we as Americans probably fear most is the, you know, disillusion of the state. Like, you know, somehow we go back to a civil war type type atmosphere. But that's just a thought. Ryan, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so I really, you know, one of a lot of my questions here were, were based around like, you know, what's China's point of view? And I think you like really kind of like answered that already. And I, 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 uh, I guess my, my next question um, would be kind of like focusing internationally, right? We've seen a lot of Chinese activity outside of China uh, in the past, you know, 10, 20 years as they're kind of like 
growing this not it's obviously not like colonialism but it's you know it's pseudo 21st century colonialism that many powers are practicing right investing in other countries kind of getting them in your pocket you know like helping these third world countries advance more and, and expanding your sphere of influence so what is what is you know in your opinion, is the, is China doing that? And then also, what what is their end goal? Like, how how are they balancing both with with maintaining this one China and then also like extending their sphere of influence? Yeah. So China's perspective is always anything we're doing in the outside world is to shore up China, right? It really the the, the center of the China itself always comes first. The problems within China, the internal challenges, and you see that even in its military budget. So China spends more on internal security than on external defense, right? That means that it's spending more to prepare for any sort of internal revolution, rebellion, anything like that, than it's spending to prepare to fight Japan or the United States, mm-hmm. which is something that Americans find very hard to believe, but it's really mm-hmm. true because the federal government spends precisely $0 dealing with internal security because there's a natural stability, um, regionalized, federalized stability to the United States that China totally lacks. It's, it's really the opposite, right? And that's why... It's a very interesting thing that, that Sean mentioned that the United States also really fears civil war. And that is, is really true. I mean, more people died in the American civil war, more Americans than any other war. So it's a very real thing. But the depth of the, the challenge is very different. Mm. Uh, the, the Chinese one is, is much more severe. And you see that in the numbers, right? You see that in the, the actual money that it spends internally. And when people were looking in the 2010s at what China was doing in the outside world, that was really when it started to expand you had the one, the one belt, one road, all that kind of stuff. You had basically all the massive investments uh, all around Africa, Southeast Asia, et cetera. You also had investments in the United States, right? You had China buying up all sorts of marquee office properties in New York, as well as some nameplate brands and stuff like that. This was a, a moment of triumphalism for China, right? It had thought that the United States was on the, the back burner, that it, the financial crisis had hit it hard. Europe was collapsing. It had managed to stave off a recession. And there was a lot of go global. We're going to try and really expand. But the real challenge for China, and the heart of your question, well, how does it deal with the internal stuff versus expanding the, sp- the sphere of influence? China's problem is really its neighborhood. You start expanding your sphere, your sphere of influence in your immediate sphere, right? China's problem is that it has a lot of very mean neighbors, right? It, from its perspective, it has South Korea, it has North Korea, it has Japan, it has Taiwan, it has the Philippines, it has Vietnam, it has all it has Russia, it has all sorts of countries that are long historical enemies or industrialized island nations, maritime states, all sorts of things that can really disrupt all of its plans. It's very different from the United States, which has Canada and Mexico, right? Which Precisely 0% of the U.S. military is concerned with fighting a potential war against uh, Canada and Mexico. It's very different in China. And its attempts to really expand in a diplomatic or economic or other sphere beyond that, beyond its world, its immediate world and to Africa, these are just very thin, tenuous bonds. And a lot of what was going on with the One Belt, One Road, with a lot of the infrastructure development was actually China, who was refusing to downsize, right? So when the U.S. built the International, the interstate highway system, you eventually had to stop building the interstate highway system because you built it, right? And then you stopped doing it. In China, they were like, no, 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 no. We're going to just go build all that all around the world. People need jobs. We need to keep the industry humming. And that was a really key thing going on in China in the 2010s was it was this recognition that the Chinese economy was fundamentally shifting. And for a long time, and it's continued actually to this day, it has still been trying to goose the economy 
by massive infrastructure investment, massive, massive investments in all sorts of ways in real estate and also in exports and stuff like that. But this model doesn't work forever. And part of what it needed to do was actually to keep producing. It had to basically convince, pay people to buy it for a while. And what we're seeing now is actually a lot of these loans, all these things in the China's sent out to try and fund all this, a lot of them are going bad. And this is something the US learned in the 70s and 80s in particular, that you can't just give development loans to all sorts of random places because you actually have to be paid back, right? And China's learning that really brutally that you're not going to get paid back. And you also, you don't get, you can't just kind of ex build something and extort it from someone. That's not actually a great business model. It's like, okay, we built you a port and now it's our port. So, like, okay, so you built a port, right? It's, it's not, it doesn't actually lead where they thought it was going to lead. And a lot of people are getting very sensationalist about what was going on because the United States is always looking for another country that is going to be like the United States, preparing to challenge the United States. And it always assumes that that country has both the capacity and the capabilities and the intentions and, and, and the really the makeup to do what the US would do in that situation with China. It just isn't that easy. And kind of what's going to happen as the knock-on effects of Ukraine and the sort of destabilization of a lot of primary commodities markets and inputs, as this really makes its you know, you know, its presence known in the world, a lot of things China's been doing around the world and in its economy just become much harder to maintain. So its era of really trying to go global and try and expand the sphere of influence is rapidly going to start contracting. And it already is contracting. So people right remember 2021, it was a huge crackdown on all sorts of industries in China, tech being the biggest one. Mm -hmm. They they started cracking down on their equivalent of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all this stuff. And these guys actually, you know, the head, the guy who you know, founded uh, what a bite dance, which does TikTok, he had to step aside. They're actually a lot of the entrepreneurs are stepping away from the limelight because the basically the spotlight is too harsh. The glare mm -hmm. is becoming really bad. And what China's really doing is it's basically realized that it can't, it needs to start cracking down on even its most innovative sectors because the major concern now is once more internal stability, internal control. Mm -hmm. And this massive economic expansion, this massive military expansion, military be actually slightly different because that, that actually has very important consequences in its nearby region, but particularly the economic expansion, it, you know, the gig is up in a lot of ways. And we're going to see, we saw it with the property sector too, where it's like, oh God, you guys have a 50, God, at this point, $55 trillion bubble in your property sector. It's way embedded in the economy, like nothing we've seen. It might be the largest asset bubble in history and you're sitting on it. And you can't stop. And it's so embedded in your system. So I don't want to get too much into that. But the, the key thing is that that go global phase, that expand your sphere of influence phase, you know, that that's pretty much over. And we kind of saw it with the, the Olympics too. That did not look like the happy Olympics of a, a new superpower, did it? Right. That, that was a, a far cry from 2008, right? It wasn't a 2008 redo. It was uh, something much grimmer and much less uh, inspiring to the rest of the world. Yeah. I want to go back to, because as China has sort of I'm thinking going back to like World War II, the idea of Japan invading and really um, causing some major carnage and damage uh, into China. Um, how did they unite coming out of that? Because that was, we talk about that in the sense of like recent American history, um, how we became a global power, became, became global, global influence, um, our partnership with Japan at the end of that war, and what our relationship was starting with that. Because Everything from World War II up until now has, has started to become, I think, as we've said before we started recording, this push and pull with China. 
and are we friends? Are we not? Are there tensions? When are there not? Whose friends are we? Are we pairing up because we don't like the Soviet Union? Uh, you know, that's where I start to get confused as a civilian. Is just like, and we talked about this idea of like trying to find the truth down in the in the in all of this propaganda that's out there. Um, I'm consistently reading tensions rise with China amid tensions with China, China in the South China Sea. But I feel like this all goes back to the end of World War II somehow, and then there's just a cascade effect from there. Yeah, so Japan basically colonized every part of China that's worth having, right? People often in the West, we, we think more about Germany and World War II. We don't think as much about what happened. The major part of the Japanese Imperial Japan's effort in World War II involved conquering China. That mm -hmm. was most of it. And like I said, it was extremely successful doing that. And it was very brutal and it was very traumatizing for China. And you really nailed something important. The United States you know, developed an alliance with Japan. I mean, here's the truth about it. It's like, we always talk about this Japan-US alliance. Basically, the US nuked and occupied Japan. And what happened is that the reason Japan went into war in the first place in East Asia is because it wanted to industrialize. And to be an industrial nation, you need many things. You need iron. You basically need some metals, minerals, and you need fuel sources, among a couple other things. But th those are the key things. And Japan has nothing. <laughs> it has none of that. It's a bunch of rocky islands. And it had to go take them. Also, like we were talking about 19th century, early 20th century, very imperial time, you tended to just go take what you needed. So Japan is basically the first Asian country to industrialize. It smashes uh, Russia, really humiliating defeat in 1905. And then it proceeds to just take everything it wanted in East Asia. What happened when the US defeated it, like I said, nuked and occupied it, is that it actually gave Japan a better deal than it got when it had a massive empire. Mm -hmm. It gave Japan all those resources it needed to industrialize without having to conquer anyone, without having to even have a massive military, because the military is a, is a you know, budget line item. It takes up a lot of resources. And it gave Japan access to global markets for all the inputs, not just the inputs and the resources, but also to consumers. Suddenly, Japan could sell to not just Japan, but also to the United States and to Europe. And that's why until you know, Japan was, been, it was the largest, second largest economy for decades and is still one of the top three after China. It's a really big thing. And from China's perspective, you got to realize that the United States has always been a very frightening in the 20th. So I talk about how it's a very sort of inspiring figure in the 20th, in the 19th century. It had that connection with the United Kingdom and sort of being the one that sort of escaped beyond it, had all these notions of freedom. It's actually very connected with ancient Chinese sages, believe it or not. There's a, a meritocratic tradition in the pre-dynastic imaginary world of ancient China where the US, the people like George Washington were associated with basically mythic figures. So it goes really deep. 20th century, things really change, right? Basically, the US you know, to, conquered the country that had conquered China. You know what I mean? So that, that's, a, that's a difficult thing. It's like, well, not only can we not, we couldn't handle Japan, but then this other country on the other side of the world takes over Japan. And in particular, China is very threatened by maritime states. There's a reason it was Japan that conquered China. And the United States, at, at, in 1945, had by far the largest navy the world had ever seen. And the reason that Taiwan exists, for people who aren't just very clear on this, is because Taiwan exists because the U.S. Navy allowed it to exist. If it had been any, if it had been on land, there's nothing the U.S. could have done to prevent China from taking Taiwan. But because there's a strip of water, it means that you had to get through the U.S. Navy, and China couldn't do that. Now things are, are obviously a bit different, but that that was that's the primary reason why that happened. And just to your question about this push-pull dynamic, 
people should always be very clear that 1945 to 1991, the primary security and geopolitical dynamic in the world was the Cold War, right? That was the U.S.-Soviet Union confrontation. And for the U.S., part of the reason that Russia is such a locus of paranoia and obsession for the United States is because that was the Soviet Union was a real state that seemed to challenge the United States in a major way. And it's really the only nation, leaving aside modern China's kind of attempt to do something similar, that's the only nation in history that was really able to do that. And what the U.S. did was, mass, was marshal a global response to the Soviet Union. And you know, just so people give a sense of what, what I mean when I'm talking about the Soviet Union being a major threat. In, 1940, in 1945, I think it was August 8th, 1945, the same day that uh, the U.S. dropped the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki, uh, Stalin basically launched an operation that the U.S. military later called it Operation August Storm, I think it was. And basically, this was the Soviet invasion of Manchuria. And this was really, an, a, this was the greatest bit of land maneuver warfare the world had ever seen. They basically conquered Manchuria in a matter of weeks. They conquered like, you know, it was like double the territory of uh, Hitler's Blitzkrieg in like half the time. It was a crazy operation. It really let the U.S. know and the U.S. military know what the newly powerful Soviet military was capable of after it had basically steeled itself against Hitler for so many years and had become a, a real machine. And what it meant for the U.S. was that you can't leave Europe anymore. If you leave Europe, by the time you know your ships, are, all the people are coming back on the ships, you, you can't even get there in time to stop the invasion because the Soviet tank forces are that fast now, right? It could take them weeks. You know, it takes 11, 14 days just to get your first ships from the East Coast of the United States to Europe. Well, that was too slow. They would, you know, people would be in, basically tanks would be in Paris at that point. So that is a big reason why the U.S. had to stay. And you basically have the situation where a major state could threaten not only, you know, China at once, you know, all of Eurasia was basically seemed like it could be eaten by the Soviet Union. So the U.S. Mm -hmm. freaked out. And, and this was the primary dynamic. It was this attempt to create a global economic and security alliance against the Soviet Union. That was the primary dynamic. And China, the U.S.-China relationship is really, before, you know, until 1991, is really a subset of that. So like you said, this is a lot of the early push-pull. China, the reason, part of the reason China, you asked that question of how did it come together after this brutal occupation? Part of what happened is that the Soviet Union supported the communists and made it happen, right? So like I said, they invaded Manchuria. That means that Mao was getting a lot of resources from right next door. And Soviet Union wanted China to be red. And so this is, you know, in the US, you know, you go talk to sort of strategic thinkers and policy guys, there's a whole notion of the US lost China, right? It lost China in the 1940s. Well, it was kind of hard to keep China when your rival was right there, right? It's like, well, how would we stop, I don't know, like uh, Argentina from, you know, trying to support a coup in, what is it, Uruguay? It's like, well, we're kind of far away, right? It's like, it's a very hard thing to do. And that's yeah. a lot of what was going on with China. And so the early years, early decade, really, of the Chinese Communist Party the, since 1949, it was really, everything was being modeled on the Soviet Union. It was taking its cues from the Soviet Union. It was building its administrative state off of a lot of Soviet in the ministry models, et cetera, et cetera. It was trying to do its industrialization model off the Soviet Union. And obviously this face planted and there was a big, like it actually failed, like this, this effort failed. It, it, there are a lot of successes, but the actual industrialization effort in particular failed. And the challenge for China is that it needed to figure out something else to do. Relations between the Soviet Union and China crumbled 
basically once Stalin had died, Mao and you know Stalin's successor, they didn't really get along. They had different views of things, et cetera. And then China kind of devolved into its uh, a navel gazing, chaotic internal period, the cultural revolution, stuff like that. It was very bad. And so basically both the US and China were looking for a bit of a way out. China needed to develop. It didn't want endless chaos and internal violence forever. That is a, China knows what that looks like. So it was willing to make peace with the United States and the United States wanted to you know, get some leverage over the Soviet Union. And that was, that was the primary thing. And then, yeah, what happened afterwards, you know, since the late 70s, early 80s, China has opened up and China's just been developing, right? There's a lot of forces going on. I won't try and go into it too much with the, the late, 19, uh, late 20th century, but China became the integral node in the globalized world for production, right? Basically, there's the world of, you know, the globalized world is the world of globalized production and consumption. Places like the United States did a lot of the consumption, places like Germany and Japan and then increasingly China did a lot of the, the production. And so it just absorbed, it became the key production node in the, well, the globalized world that has ended. It's basically ending like as we speak. And that is, that's been its key role. And that's a, there's a huge tension inherent in this system, right? So, well, if the US is consuming all sorts of things, we suddenly feel like, why aren't we producing anything anymore? What happened? Why is it all in China? Why is there a rust belt? What's going on? But this was part of the the deal, I mean, not the deal, it wasn't an official deal, but you got as a result of this globalized network and you had very advanced, you know, starting in the eighties, you got very advanced transportation uh, linkages, you got multimodal stuff, you got the ability using information software to track all the different pieces around the world. You could create these global supply chains that went all over the world and that got the absolute lowest tax, lowest cost of production, you know, cost for every single component and then you would basically send all this to China to assemble where China made sure that it was the lowest cost place to do all of this stuff. That is kind of what happened. And the, like I said, there, there's natural tensions that happen with this. And the, the scale of China's development was not what a lot of people in the United States were prepared for. They weren't, they were expecting, a lot of people were expecting China to collapse way back, way back, 90s, the, the 2000s, 2010s, whenever. But it, it's kind of trundled along. And as it's just grown more and more powerful, it starts to trigger the United States as a way to think about it. I know that people have different opinions on that word, but basically when you hit around two thirds of US GDP, the US tends to freak out, feel like its position as top dog is threatened and starts to lash out. So the same thing happened with the Soviet Union, actually happened with Japan in the late eighties. You kind of hit this numerical psychological threshold and the whole United States starts lining up against you. And China has been in that zone for since the you know, middle of the 2010s. And now we have, yeah, basically a solid, the United States is solid with unified hostility against China. It's basically bipartisan and things are only kind of going to get worse and degenerate as, as the relationship goes on, because there's not really a point of, I mean, there is a point of sort of economic benefit. You know, like I said, that the, there are still benefits to the sort of split in the economic system. But the blowback, the social repercussions, and most importantly, the electoral repercussions have hit the United mm -hmm. States. So you had, obviously, you had the Rust Belt, you had the degeneration of families, you had the decline of all sorts of basic, very important factors in you know, social and economic life. But then you had, particularly, the 2016 election, where Donald Trump ran in part on anti-China animus, was extremely successful. Everything he did against China was extremely successful politically for his uh, support. And now you just have a place where both left and right have decided, well, neither of us, well, particularly the left side, we can't look weak on China anymore. And once you have that, you have both sides. And so it ain't, it ain't getting better from, from political standpoint. And really the, 
the Chinese model, like I said earlier, is really coming to an end. So it's not going to be able to sustain it anymore. We're going to have to find something new. Yeah, no, I think you bring up some some really good points. And mm-hmm. I just have noticed uh, in some of these, you know, with 2022 being a midterm election, right, you start to see more and more political commercials. And I've seen multiple times China being mentioned over and over again, right? Like in these, and that, you know, what's our relationship like with China? And you have to be tough on China and, and things like that. Um, you know, and it it's, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, we, we go through these... Uh, phases and you you mentioned a few of them right like how um where are things made is it made in china is it made in america and what are we what are we are we shipping these jobs overseas and things like that and then you you bring in this whole other component where now you keep seeing in the news right these these um humanitarian problems that are occurring with with uh china and then you put covid on top of that and you know there are there are people who who you know it was called for years the the china virus right and and things like that right so there is this, and I think you're right. There's this growing, you know, animosity and uh, animus towards towards China, and uh, you put on top of that um, everything that happened in Hong Kong. Which, quick plug for for Jason, I watched some of his YouTube videos, and one of them on Hong Kong was really great. So great job there. I would uh, encourage our listeners to go listen to Jason's uh, YouTube videos. Really cool stuff. So I guess my 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 question in a in a roundabout way is like, how um, you know where do we, where can we repair this relationship? Like, what do you see as a path forward, both, both with, within the, the Chinese internally, and then also like, um, where, where does it go from here? Yeah, I will say a quick plug, not the, if you like the Hong Kong thing, I have a three-part uh, podcast series called Battlefield Hong Kong, which yeah. is really like, I try to give that full picture of Hong Kong and how it developed. I think you'd really like it. So if you liked whatever I said cool. on Hong Kong on, on a video, so that, that's cool. And <laughs> I'll then- check it out. Yeah, yeah, it's worth it. And okay, I got to remind me of the question. I got too excited to talk about that. What's the uh, <laughs> what's the what's the road forward? What uh, oh, can this right. relationship be repaired? Like, what where are we where are we going? Where nope. do you what do you think? No, the the answer is no. I mean, I think we're starting to realize that like this sort of kumbaya world we dreamed into being, we, like through pure magical thinking after 1991, doesn't exist, right? You you know, there's nothing you can do to stop Russia invading Ukraine. And there's not really a lot we can do for to help to help China at all with its internal problems, and China can't really do much about its internal problems. And you know, there's just not the relationship is 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 dead. I have a podcast where I just said there's not going to be any new major agreements with China. There's not going to be you know it's it's a it's hostility, right? I mean, it's you know I, I think this is where we need to kind of change our frame of reference when we're looking at a lot of international politics, because we, a lot of the ways we think about things are, don't even quite make sense. And I think a good way to start is just think about an alliance, right? So I really, I'm starting to despise this word because it doesn't need anything anymore. The U.S. had, is allied with everybody, apparently, right? Quite literally everybody on earth. If, if you're allied with basically everybody on earth, you're not allied with anybody. And I think that we have to get much more nuanced about how we're in, you know, we need a much more fine textured look at what actually keeps countries, you know, in the same bed, which what kind of puts them at odds with each other. Because what we're seeing in Europe right now is just that even all of Europe is at odds with all the parts of Europe about all these different issues, right? And, you know, everyone has a slightly different opinion about Ukraine, slightly different thing about Russia. Oh, we need a bit more gas. And well, we have nuclear power, so we can kind of do what we want. And you're seeing all this 
very nuanced breakdown in a sort of global unified front. And what this unfortunately means is that a lot of just recurring problems and sort of weird parochial pathologies in different countries are all coming out, right? All these little things that countries are obsessed about. It's like, wow, I thought we would be done with this world where we care about that kind of stuff. We're marching into the beautiful future. It's like, no, countries are still going to start basically the same sorts of wars they've already always started. They're going to get into the same fights with the same countries. Um, but you basically had a world after 1991 where the U.S., ran the global system on autopilot and a lot of the natural conflicts in the world were paused and now a lot of them are roaring back and i think a great example is just china and japan you think about what japan we talked about it. we talked about how badly japan wrecked china during world war ii before world war ii and throughout and yet there hasn't been a a single bullet fired afterwards you know what i mean and china despises japan in a lot of ways actually a lot of people in east asia really don't like japan but the reason things were kept at bay, the reason countries like you know, France and Germany, to be quite honest, or Germany and Russia, or you know, Japan and China, all these countries didn't get into conflicts is because the US was there and the US military in particular, and this is a, a veteran podcast, so I think it's very worth saying, people don't quite realize why the US military is structured the way it is, why it has the budget it has. So people are often saying, wow, we have such an enormous military, the budget's so crazy, we should spend the money elsewhere, why is it bigger than the next 10, 20, however many economy uh, militaries combined? The very reason the US military has so much money is because all of the other militaries are so small. The US was doing the work of Japan and Germany, and it was purposely negating their military security infrastructure and the military infrastructure and their security policy it was absorbing it into itself because we'd seen what happens when Japan has its own independent military and when Germany has its own independent military. And it's not just those countries. And now we're getting into a world where this isn't going to fly anymore. And you, you see what's happening in Ukraine right now is we have basically all of Europe is saying, no, oh, we're going to stop doing this, try to do that. But they basically need the United States to eventually come in and save the day, basically try and fix things. And we knew this was the way it was. I mean, right after the Soviet Union fell, you had the, the problems in Kosovo and, and the Balkans. And it was the same situation. It was actually the exact same situation where eventually the U.S. had to come in and try and deal with the situation because it had become there's no military capacity or integrated security policy in Europe that could piece itself together. And unfortunately, just getting back to the question of China and can it be repaired and where is it going? We're really at a place where these things you can't repair them. A lot of what was happening is things weren't being repaired. They were being like pushed under the rug and people were getting a little bit of this and you were getting a benefit here. And suddenly your economy was still growing. And we're getting into a world where economies in Europe and economies around the world aren't growing anymore. Populations are declining. You have a whole host of really bad macroeconomic and macro social factors all around the world. And you can't grow your way out of these problems, which is actually a big reason why things were so good for so long. Let's just take 1991, fall of the Soviet Union, to like 2020, pandemic. You had a, a lot of things going on. You had a huge global um, baby boom, basically. You had all the, everybody, you had a massive uh, demographic dividend in China. You had that, that was, that's a really important thing to, to grow economies. To Basically, in the United States since 1975, half of the economic growth the country's experienced has come from just the population growing. And it makes sense. If the population is growing, I can serve more people. I can save, serve more paper towels. There's more babies. You probably need more strollers. You have more Facebook uh, 
you know, consumers, ad watchers, et cetera, it just grows and grows. That is a natural base effect growth in the economy. Now we're losing that. And we're also seeing what happened with Russia and China since 1991 is that China reduced the cost of manufactured goods all across the world. So China was a big source of manufacturing you know, cost deflation. Usually manufactured goods are expensive to make, typically. The fact that we've been able to buy things for like dollars or cents should always, it's always been, you know, causing problems. People are always like, this doesn't make any sense. How are we doing it? But we're still going to just buy because it it's cheap. Well, the reason this was happening is because of what I said, we created a very intricate system where you had a globalized center of production that was by far the lowest cost and was competing on cost. So, and it was, China was specifically, by the way, doing things to make itself the lowest cost place to do business. No labor laws, no health care, no environmental regulations. You don't have to pay health. You don't have to pay pensions or insure anything. Just nothing. Bring as much business as possible. And they use that to reinvest into their country to build all the things that we now think are very impressive. But all of this really allowed this really low level of inflation for manufactured goods. We could all buy crazy stuff. And then, you know, and for Russia, for example, Russia supplies all sorts of a host of, you know, full, uh, basically food and fuels and minerals and fertilizers, all this stuff, which is, is very important. It's the number one or two or three you know, exporter of you know, wheat, steel, nickel, palladium, all sorts of things that are very important. And they actually also reduce the cost of the production of everything. A big reason why Germany right now is so against trying to be too tough on Russia is because it needs cheap energy to export things. If you raise the cost of energy, your entire industrial production system becomes more expensive and less competitive. And Germany doesn't have enough consumers in Germany to actually have a, you know, a consumer economy. It needs to export around the world. And so you're getting to the point where, I mean, these models are sort of failing, but in general, this 30-year almost deflationary cycle where you had super cheap inputs because you had all the global inputs all around the world. And you had a country like Russia, which was just you know, industrially degenerating and just giving all the inputs it doesn't it didn't need anymore to the rest of the world for really cheap. And you had China basically building everything for really cheap. And all this stuff is going away now. So we're entering it. Already we've seen inflation. This inflation right now hasn't even absorbed the things that I was just talking about. Like once you have manufacturing uh, inflation coming, once you have, you know, you have the all the the Russian goods and Ukrainian goods come offline, that's more inflationary pressure. And it's it's a real change. It's a real step change in the world we've known. And this is a big reason why you're going to hear people in the news talking about, we need to repair this relationship and repair that. And this is, this is nonsense for back when the world was generally growing and productive. This is not going to work. There's going to be so many fires everywhere that that whole perspective is going to just flounder. And you're going to see a lot of people, particularly on the center left, a little bit on the center right, who are going to say, no, the liberal world order we've built for the last 75 years is crumbling. What do we do? We have to bring it back. We have to preserve it. It's like, well, it is sad. This was a this was a great time. It was the best period in a lot of ways ever in human history, but it is also ending and there's nothing we can do about it. There's no US. You can't like change a little dial here, change a little dial here and bring, you know, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So that's not going to happen. So it's going to take the US political establishment and business establishment, the commentariat a long time to actually process how do we navigate this new world? And in the meantime, there's going to be crises everywhere. And just getting back again to the question of alliances and what it means and can we repair things, what's going to happen is it's going to be the US pulling back. It's going to pull back to countries it actually feels a strong connection to, that has economic, strong economic ties to, 
and stuff like that. And you're going to see it's a lot of it's going to be basically the Anglosphere of countries. That's going to be Britain. It's going to be uh, New Zealand. It's going to be Australia. It's going to be uh, people in you know, NATO. I mean, uh, NAFTA, you know, the NAFTA group, you know, maybe Japan too. It's a very small Singapore. It's a very small group of countries. And that's kind of the world we're entering. And it's, it's very dangerous. And it's, you know, I get that kind of what I'm saying is very different from what you're hearing. If you just go read a news article right now, it's going to talk about Ukraine and Russia and who's going to win and what it means. But the, the knock-on effects, the, the overall global uh, disintegration, degeneration that, that this is just a part of, right? We saw it with COVID. COVID was, COVID is what the best uh, case, I know this is really awful to say for people who care, but COVID was the best, the example of what the best case scenario looks like for a global response to climate change, right? There is no capacity at a global level to integrate any of this stuff, to integrate national policy, to sort of coordinate all this stuff. It's not going to happen. And like all the things that are going to happen furthermore in the 2020s are going to make it even less possible. So- Because everything I, can be bought and sold- and at this point, all of these things are going to cascade to the consumer. So eventually, we're just going to see prices skyrocket. If yeah, there's a lot. That's what I'm, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things. I, I didn't want to get into a whole thing about inflation, but there's a lot of things pushing inflation. And the, you mm -hmm. know, we have basically labor populations in all the developing world are declining and aging. So you're going to have the, co the major cost for most businesses is actually just labor. So you're going to have more expensive labor. I mentioned input prices. You have more expensive energy. You know, when you take off Russian oil, you take out production and all these things, that raises the cost of energy, lowers, you know, obviously lower supply, uh, same, same demand, that means higher prices. And then, like I was saying with the China thing, you're also getting manufacturing inflation as well. And there's a lot of components. You know, this all happens in different ways, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beast. It's a beast of a storm that, that's coming with that. And yeah, like typically what happens is you know, some parts of it are absorbed by producers. Uh, but a lot of it just gets passed to consumers. But one mm -hmm. thing people don't focus on enough with inflation is the production side. So we always talk about how inflation means like more expensive bacon, <laughs> which is true. This is ridiculously expensive. It's basically it's basically a federal crime in my opinion. But the the other challenge is just what it does for production in general because you the production side of things is harder to see, but that's where most of the economy really is, and it is, you know, it's very difficult. If energy, you can suddenly have a lot of bankruptcies of all sorts of energy companies, right? You're actually seeing that in Britain right now. There's a lot of energy companies that are going bankrupt and suddenly the, the basic civilizational inputs can be under threat. This is kind of what people should really focus on. Leaving aside inflation for a second, you're looking at the 2020s, you want to know what to worry about, what to focus on. I can't look at all the, the news. There's too many, there'd be too many fires everywhere. You want to make sure, you want to look at, can the country feed itself? Can it fuel itself? Does it, is its population educated? Is it healthy? You know, does it, is its industry stable or growing? And the unfortunate thing is that most countries uh, are really going to struggle with that. So really important stat I think everybody should know is that basically around 75% of countries require foreign or foreign aid or support to provide basic services, goods and services to their people. So with this breakdown, we're going to see a really, really, really difficult and, and horrific thing around the world. I'm really, I'm sorry that this is really becoming a very brutal. No, it's where I'm trying um, to think like, uh, where, uh, does, where do we hit the panic button? At what point yeah, is it like, I, I, I want it to be like this, but I want like, it's even worse if you just feel like you're getting, we're hitting, like, cause everyone, since the pandemic started, people have been like, oh God, we're just, we're just spiraling to the next crisis. And I, ideally I, I would, you know, I'd, I'd like people to get, have a bit of a heads up that things are getting uh, pretty bad, but 
I'll, I'll leave that aside. I'll just, uh, not well, no, I think that's a really good point is because, you know, pandemic, um, you know, say January 6th, these, these things that, that hit the news, they're there for a week, you know, uh, the uh, evacuations out of Afghanistan, all these things hit the news and then they're gone very quickly. And we all just keep rolling right along. Like, you know, when can I watch my, my next episode on Netflix? Um, but, you know, Ukraine, this crisis, it's like, okay, that happened this morning. And I don't feel like I'm pressing a panic button when this happens because one, it's just maybe not knowing enough about the, the, the global state of things but also it's just like okay it's another another yeah. crisis and i think it's just crisis overload we're just like definitely I, you know I, I just i i have to have cereal in the morning and feed my kid <laughs> why do i got to worry about what's going on in ukraine but there are things about this part of our generation that we should really take note of and pay attention to because what i what i think i'm hearing is like we could be tumbling towards a global conflict, maybe not on the scale of like a World War II or World War III, but certainly an economic conflict that's going to bring about a lot of hardship. Yeah, I'd also say we have a bad idea of what wars and things mean because our experience, the average civilian experience of Afghanistan and Iraq was nothing, right? Interest rates don't even rise kind of thing. Like nothing changes, it's just a distant war, it doesn't matter. It can go on for years and nothing matters. That's not gonna be the, the nature of sort of these conflicts. I think is a good way to think, think, things have changed, right? Mm -hmm. the, the things that were allowing the, the global uh, expansion in that period, they're coming to an end. So that's a big, a big thing uh, to consider. And I think you're definitely right that we can't focus on all this stuff, right? We can't focus on all this stuff it's, it's too much. It's also too gruesome. And we don't have a lot of power to change things. And so I, one of the reasons I kind of stop myself when I go on this is because you don't need to, in a lot of ways, you don't, you need to make sure you're kind of handling your own stuff. You're improving yourself as a person. You're doing your job. You're doing the best you can for self-improvement, your family, your community. We're, we're definitely in a world where, like I was saying, for the, the State Department, if the State Department can't repair this relationship, then what can you do, right? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not going to change. I can't repair so, my relationship with my dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, my take on this, one thing I'm doing is I'm putting together a course that's trying, it's going to give people a sense of some of the, the global, the, the principles that explain, you know, why countries are the way they are, why these conflicts repeat, why France and Germany have warred like 20 times historically, various iterations of France and Germany and things like that. And why the world we've known was so different than when the world that has always existed. And this is a really big challenge. We grew up in a time that was just unprecedented. The, the level of global cooperation, the lack of military conflicts, the distance we all had from, from these events. Typically when wars happen, it means like, like you're seeing in Ukraine, like mass mobilization, mass destruction, refugee crises, that kind of stuff has always been very distant. And in, in North America, a lot of these things are distant. They're just distant. They're just on the other side of the yeah. world. Yeah, and well, you, I mean, you brought up all these things we were talking about in this, this broad economic growth, right? Is it has insulated us from so many things, um, both, both, you know, nationally and internationally, right? So we, we don't have a perspective. And then we've been cut off from everybody for two years because of COVID and all of these things. And like, we're emerging into a very different world. It's very, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. And there's a lot of factors to it. That's for sure. And to, to jump into this, it's like, should conflict, should it come to conflict? And Ryan, I'll be interested in your opinion on this, the idea of militarily, we see that China is sort of expanded in the South China Sea. We hear a lot of that. 
and we say like, okay, well, we're not going to be landing Marines on the beaches of Okinawa, just, you know, into China, you know, to give an example, it would be more of a naval conflict. If we, if, if we headed towards conflict with China, what would that look like militarily? And what would that look like economically? Ooh, yeah, that's a big question. Oh, go for it. I would, just, I would just say, you know, I've, I've read several papers. Uh, this is something that, you know, it, it had always been assumed for many decades, right, which Jason already alluded to, right, like, the US military stopped China from taking Taiwan. And it was, it wasn't that long ago, um, when, you know, some of these papers I was reading was like, that is no longer possible, right? Like, if, if China essentially wanted to conduct a military taker of over of Taiwan, there's not much we could do to stop them, right? You're talking about massive distances from the US to to China, right? The the whole Pacific Ocean and the fact that it is so close that you wouldn't just be fighting, right, the Chinese Navy, you'd be fighting, you know, Chinese land-based artillery and rockets and, and all these sorts of things, right? And their technology has advanced so far that it, it is, maybe it's not peer level with the United States military, but it's close enough that you would, you know, you're talking about China can send out you know, 100 land-based helicopters with torpedoes attached to them that can get out to your carrier group and drop, and they can lose 99 of them, but only one torpedo has to get through and you've just lost a carrier, right? And that's that's a game changer. That's basically game over, right? So there is, um, most of the things that I've, I've read have, have basically said, you know, this is, this is we, we could, you know, but at what cost? And is it worth it? Um, uh, and how difficult would it be, and how long would it take? Are the is the juice worth the squeeze in, in that sort of in that sort of scenario, right? Where you're talking about sending massive amounts of military over that way for up to you know two years, and and how you know when they can be when they're you know they can be rowing over in fishing boats and getting more troops over there faster than than you could to the island of Taiwan. What 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 do you think, Jason? Yeah, so. A big change happened in the 1990s when China basically started developing, started having a credible threat to U.S. carriers through long-range, basically ballistic missiles that, like the DF-21 and now the DF-17. This really changed the calculus in the Western Pacific because U.S. expeditionary naval firepower is insane, but it relies on carriers. And you can start if you can start knocking them out, it's a very different game. So what China has developed is what the military calls an anti-access area denial strategy, where mm. it could basically push the U.S. Navy about about a thousand miles out from the, the Chinese coast. You get in, you get within that zone, it could start to threaten these carriers, and it, it causes problems. Now, there's real questions about if the Chinese missiles can actually target the U.S. carriers. So, it's kind of an interesting thing, but the Missiles like that are going so fast, you they don't tend to have the, the guidance and targeting they need on, and they're going so far and so fast that they don't have the targeting on board. You actually need to use satellites. And so this is a big reason why the U.S. now has a space force is in part because any conflict with China is almost inevitably going to be a, a battle in space. And for people who don't, people need to realize that from the Chinese military perspective, a major event was Desert Storm. So late 1980s, early 90s, there's all these Eastern Soviet republics that are failing, you know, communist states are failing. And it's a very bad time, the Communist Party, you know, there's, there's Tiananmen Square, there's all these things, it was very bad, very worried. And then you had the US ridiculously successful oper operation in Iraq in, in 1991. And that was where China basically realized its entire military structure, the, the force, the architecture, concept of operations, everything, 
would fail horribly against the U.S. military. So it's been basically preparing to fight more of what it calls informationized, it's a really bad word, informationized, information wars, we'll just say information wars. And that requires space. And basically space is sort of the nucleus where all the information is, is travels. And when you're trying to launch something like real, like, like say a dozen uh, long range anti-ship missiles against a US carrier, the way the US would stop that is by destroying all the satellites that allow the targeting. And China has think it wants to use you know drones and stuff to do that. But the point here is once the China was able to create this credible military threat to US carriers in the Western Pacific, things changed. In the 1990s, Clinton was able to you know, steam a carrier, basically, you know, I guess steam is still a good word, steam a carrier in the, you know, too, I think in the Taiwan Strait as a show of strength, right? That kind of thing. The calculus has really changed. And a really key point is always, yeah, Taiwan is like a hundred miles off of China's coast, but it's thousands of miles away for us. It's a big difference. The challenge also for China, people, I always want to give people this context. Taiwan is not easy to conquer. This is another bit of Chinese propaganda. Oh, China's so big. Taiwan's so small. It's natural. We're just going to eat you. It's just a fait accompli. That has been a lot of their rhetoric and a lot of their propaganda. It is not that easy. An amphibious uh, invasion is basically one of the most difficult military operations you can conduct. And especially to try to do that to a heavily armed, industrialized island nation, it's very tough. And yeah, and you know, personally, the answer for Taiwan is not is to do asymmetric warfare, right? It's actually to do what China was doing for a long time against the United States. It's actually to invest in things like missiles and mines. And I, I've said this a lot. And I know it's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. And as the world starts to degenerate in the way we've talked about, this is actually going to become more prominent, this sort of thing. But mining the Taiwan Strait is a quick and brutal uh, answer to a lot of Taiwan's problems. So you need to, to actually sustain uh, an amphibious you know, invasion of Taiwan. You need endless amounts of fuel and <laughs> tanks and ammunition and everything to just constantly go back and forth uh, between, the tai between Taiwan and the mainland. And that's incredibly difficult to do. And it's to sustain it and to the whole, the whole operation is actually way more complicated. There's pretty good credible estimates that, that China could lose up to a third of its military firepower just trying to get this done. It is not easy. Even, even if the U.S. is obviously far away, the Japan has basically announced that it would defend Taiwan in a, in a conflict. And that makes a lot of sense because in the 1890s, Japan, the first thing that Japan took was Taiwan. Taiwan, actually, if you look at the you know, a map of Japan, there's all the home islands, there's the Ryukyu Islands, and there's Taiwan at the very base of it. And they're almost like one long chain. And it is it's actually a natural thing. If Taiwan, China did move for uh, Taiwan, it would basically start taking some of the Rikyu Islands, of which Okinawa is the most famous. And that just starts to degenerate, you know, that's a natural move towards war with war with Japan. So there's a whole net naughty complex of issues there. But I think uh, the key thing, the key question here is what's the, you know, the balance of power in the in the Western Pacific? This is really important because even if you don't use it, the credible threat that you present, that you present is a major deterrent. And that's what China's been doing with this anti-ship missile campaign, basically. It's like, well, just by presenting such a major threat to the U.S. Navy, which the U.S. Navy has not known in decades, it's really changing uh, the calculus. It's changing the, the, the development of novel weapon systems for the, the U.S. Navy. It's changing the, a lot of the, the tactical air wing composition. All sorts of things are really going to change because you need to start moving like a thousand miles. <laughs> you need to be able to have aircraft that could either be refueled or, or fly 
with a really long combat radius, which you don't have, right? So that in a typical carrier air wing has you know, F-18s and increasing and soon F-35s. These have a combat radius about 550 to 660-ish miles. You could refuel them in, in air and maybe you'll get a couple hundred more. Yeah, that means you can't get close enough to do what you need to do. So it's a, it's a real challenge. And I think also one thing that's important, one other thing, a key, I'll just add a quick military development and we can get off this because it's a lot and I, I don't want to just suddenly dive into military stuff out of nowhere, but the US has finally started investing in its own anti-ship missile systems. Basically for a long time, all it had was a really ancient missile called the Harpoon, really old, short range, uh, very useful for a place like Taiwan, which has small ranges. But when you start have you need like tomahawk ranges if, when you're trying to do what we're doing. And the U.S. is really investing in a whole host of new anti-ship missiles, which pre presents to China the same sort of problem, right? China also has capital ships. It has, you know, the key things it needs to, you know, maintain to be able to maintain any sort of real naval presence. And once you can start threatening those, it makes it just as difficult because you actually can't sustain an invasion of Taiwan on rowboats. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to be able to do it. Like you, you, it, you actually need real stuff. And then the key thing here, the, the key overarching question about military operations and security in the West Pacific has always been an energy question because it requires lakes of fuel to, to go to war with someone, to go to war with someone. And the a big reason why China's in the South China Sea, both to secure the, that whole zone and to basically prospect for natural resources like oil and gas. And it wants to create a string of pearls and all that into the Indian Ocean. It's trying to secure its supply lines for energy because yeah. China relies on it. Uh, and it's you need, especially when war hits, that's when you really need it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think of all the, you know, I won't call it depressing, but but down, but you know, things that, that things that made me think like, maybe I want to like, I don't know, build a cabin in the woods or something. At least that, you know, is, is a, is a, is a high note, right? That the, 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 the fate accompli uh, is not there, that the invasion of Taiwan is certainly not a given if China wanted to do it. Um, yeah. Thank, thank you very much, man, for your time, uh, for, you know, your, your expertise, um, I think we can definitely call you an expert. Um, you know so much about so many things relating to this. And this was like super educational for me. Uh, I can't wait to check out your book. Um, do you know when it's coming out or what it's going to be called? Yeah, I wanted you to hit touch on that and your series coming up. Yeah, sure. So the book is, I ideally, it will come out uh, towards the end of the year. The, the title is China Unraveled, Order in Chaos in East Asia. And the goal is to explain, I'm going to explain where China is, all that stuff we talked about, the river mm -hmm. systems, integrating them together. This is actually the key stuff. This is the deep stuff. This is what lets you talk about all the China states in history. And I'm going to explain why China goes through these cycles of order and chaos, basically. And mm -hmm. this, the chaos is much longer than the order. Yeah, It looks like a long, continuous series of dynasties, like we said, but a lot of that's propaganda. China is not a dynastic phoenix that just changes its feathers, you know, reappears every moment. It's a lot of warlordism, a lot of violence. And to understand why that is the case and what we can learn from it, I think it's really valuable. So I'll go through all that. I'll go through how China modernized and where things are headed. And then most importantly, why that matters for the United States, because I think the, the key to all this, and amidst all this depression, like, you know, Russia is not going to take over Eastern Europe. It's too exhausted of a country basically to do that. China is not going to really take over much of anything either. It, it has way too many problems. So the world isn't going to be, it's not doom and gloom in this way for the United States. The key question is just what we do, how do we, where, 
how and in what way do we move forward? How do we keep the light of civilization of consciousness kind of moving forward in some way? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's sort of the key, the, the key question in this. And it, yeah. And I think we just need a way to not drown in, in the, in the crazy politics of things. So I'm going to try and touch on stuff with that, but yeah, that was the book. The book, will, it should be really cool. I put a lot of time into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the meantime, everyone you should check out, you know, podcast has good stuff, increasingly live streams and might even start doing like random, very short, uh, pithy, like TikTok, Instagram stuff. People are like, Jason, you got, you know, this is where you really got to go. And I actually might have fun with that, but what is your yeah. website? Yeah. Website, www.jasonsheftel.com. You can see I have large articles on there. I have like a uh, thing on agriculture, on energy. I have a big one coming out on space. Space is very important. I kind of touched on a little bit of that, uh, but you yeah, a lot of things. And yeah. And so that's cool. Uh, realistically though, the, until the book comes out, you'll probably get one more article and then I'll probably just be doing some interviews. I'll be working on the book and then, oh, I did, I did mention a bit of the course. So mm-hmm. this is really cool. And I, I decided to do this after go, going on all these interviews, basically. And people are asking like, how do we, I need a way to make a sense of this. And I don't want to be just drowning in the news, drowning in the misery. Uh, so I think giving people a, a foundation about what's going on. And they don't have to listen to me instead of hearing, you know, it's teach, I'm going to teach people to fish instead of just handing them the fish. Like, Here's the miserable nature of the world, you know, or you're, or you're entering. It's like, no, you, you know yourself. And then ideally, once you have a sense for, for the world, you can then do your thing. And hopefully the thing you're doing contributes to making a better world. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, just real quick for everyone listening. It is jasonsheftel.com. Sheftel spelled S-Z-E-F-T-E-L.com. Jasonsheftel.com. Jason, thank you so much for being here on the Scuttlebutt with us. And uh, for those of you listening, uh, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you know uh, when we release new episodes every Monday. Uh, Jason, uh, this has been a wealth of information and educational material. And uh, it'd be awesome to have you back, especially after the book comes out, to come back on. And I'm sure the state of the world will be a touch different maybe by that point. So it'll be interesting to sort of catch up with you and hope to invite you back for another discussion. Great. Thanks, Sean and Ryan. I appreciate both of you. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.